So the centralized ecosystem, you don't have full control of your assets. You don't have full transparency of your assets, your performance, what people are doing with your money, real-time PNLs, etc. You don't have real-time or historical easy access to transaction history to see if a manager has been executing things in a in a good way in a best execution kind of style and because you don't have that transparency it, it lends itself well to people taking advantage of the lack of transparency hello and welcome to the lewis and kyle show an interview podcast where lewis and i interview top performers in the areas of entrepreneurship investing, cryptocurrency, really anything that lights us up. Today, we have Mona El Issa on the podcast. Lewis, why don't you tell us a little bit about her? Yeah, so Mona is the co-founder and very involved with the Enzyme Protocol, which is an extremely awesome decentralized finance project for on-chain asset management, Well, she'll do a much better, more thorough job of explaining than I just did in this interview. We talked to Mona about the differences between the crypto decentralized finance universe and the traditional finance universe in layman's terms. So don't be afraid of all the jargon that is going to come in that. She broke it down in very simple terms. We talk about the opportunities in the space for people at the beginning of their career. We talk about some of the fundamental assumptions uh, that are different between traditional finance and decentralized finance and how those affect things like governance, those affect things like regulation, those affect things like security and interoperability. We also discuss how to properly build incentives in the space to try to construct as much of a win-win universe as possible. It was a really fun conversation. Mona is very smart and has thought a lot about all the problems that we posed to her. And I'm excited for you to listen to it. So with that, enjoy this conversation with Mona. Mona, welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show. Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you. So we know that you've been in the crypto universe for a few years now, and today is actually a big day for it. But I wanted to to ask you about where you live, which is Zug, Switzerland, which is sort of coined as the, the crypto valley or the Silicon Valley for crypto. And what it, what is it like there during a bull run? Oh, so full disclosure, I actually don't live there currently, <laughs> but I did spend a few years there and I have lived through a bull market in Zug and I visit there for work, obviously still quite regularly. And I don't live too far to be fair, but yeah, it's, it's, it's great. The, 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 the town is like, or the city is, is always buzzing. There's always people coming in and out from abroad, from other places in Switzerland. There's kind of non-stop crypto events happening there's non-stop events organized by local partners governments you know government is like hugely encouraging of crypto projects there so they they do a lot of networking events they bring government officials they bring a lot of interesting visitors come through whether it's like international regulators or you know the Vitalik Buterin's of the world or the you know kind of investors of the world looking to scout for projects so it's a pretty, you know, it's a pretty, it's a pretty good place to be in. I would say though that this bull market, you know, obviously we have the COVID circumstances, so probably travel is is flowing a little bit less freely than it did like last time around. Yeah, I'm reading the Infinite Machine right now about Ethereum, and it talks a lot about Zug and and Switzerland. So it's it's interesting that you've been there because. You know, in the book, it talks about like the very first meeting they had there in Switzerland. And they're like, well, we could make this the Crypto Valley. And it, it's crazy that they actually did it. Yeah. Um, but so the next question, just generally, and, you know, I, I try and explain decentralized finance to like people like my mom. And they're like, why are you interested in this? I'm like, well, it's all these different reasons. But if you could just explain in layman's term, like layman's terms, why is decentralized finance better than traditional finance? So 
I actually don't like to take a judgment that it's better. I like people to decide what's better for them. I think that's the better way to phrase it. All I would say is that it's different and it's an alternative financial system. So I would say that a traditional finance is it's it's very centralized. You know, there's it's often actually you don't need to look much further than the the recent kind of uh, Robin Hood shenanigans with you know how a centralized entity can ban trading and forbid its users from doing something which is potentially you know there was frankly nothing. Not that there was nothing wrong with it, you could debate that, but that kind of stuff happens all the time in, 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 you know, with bigger kind of organizations and never gets called out. So why was it called out when, you know, for once the people win, you know? So I think that it was a perfect example of how centralized organization can restrict access from players without substantial or without substantial evidence or without actually having any real grounds to do that. And, and so the centralized ecosystem, you don't have full control of your assets. You don't have full transparency of your assets or performance, what people are doing with your money, real-time PNLs, etc. You don't have real-time or historical easy access to transaction history to see if a manager has been executing things in a in a good way in a best execution kind of style and because you don't have that transparency it, it lends itself well to people taking advantage of the lack of transparency and last but not least i think another really important point is in traditional finance you need a lot of financial intermediaries to help establish trust between people because if you want to if you want to trade you need to make sure that the buyer and the seller settle funds at this you know and that the buyer doesn't send you know whatever dollars to the seller but then never gets back whatever he bought and so you need financial intermediaries and gateways to ensure that the trust in the ecosystem is enforced between market participants and that the financial system can work well that all obviously adds to the lack of transparency and it adds to the cost so in decentralized finance you work with a tokenized economy. So by definition, everything is digital and everything is on a blockchain. And the blockchain lends itself really well to transparency and security. And it also lends itself well to removing the need for financial intermediaries thanks to decentralized finance protocols, starting from exchanges like Uniswap, Kyber, et cetera, for trading because of the instant settlement, because of the conditional settlement that you can embed in smart contracts because you're working with digital assets. You have lending and borrowing protocols like Compound and Aave. Again, these don't need financial intermediaries because the smart contracts embed kind of the job of the financial intermediary there. And then you have protocols like asset management protocols like Enzyme, where investors and uh, managers or product owners or even just People who want to pool their trading together don't have to necessarily trust one another, but can actually reduce the trust required between both participants because the smart contracts forbid certain non-desirable uh, outcomes. So the other, the, the last and most important actually point, which I missed is that it's decentralized. No one can shut it down. Everyone can have access. It's permissionless and you don't need to ask, you know, you don't need to sort of, there's no way for you to be blocked from the system. So I, I'm not, I think it's too early to say which is better. Obviously, like we like to believe that DeFi is better, but I think really will, what I can say for, with certainty is that the two systems are completely different. 
and they open users up to different types of risks and different benefits. Yeah, thank you for that extremely clear uh, comparison of the two and the main advantages and disadvantages. I think that one thing that people are really tempted to do when something like the internet or the blockchain is a brand new technology is assume that it's the solution for everything and therefore it's better in every way than the previous way of handling things. And like all things, there's certainly situations where it's better than somewhere you know you don't necessarily need the blockchain or adds complexity without bringing any benefit. So you mentioned at the end there uh, about Enzyme, which is your company, your startup. Could you tell us about Enzyme, kind of the mission of it, and then as well towards the end, what the five to 10 year best case scenario for Enzyme would be? Yeah, sure. So Enzyme is a protocol, it's not a company. It's a decentralized protocol, which I do not own, but I did co-found. And it's basically a protocol that allows anyone, it serves two types of users, managers and investors. So anyone who is who wants to manage their own assets, the assets of others, anyone who wants to co-trade, co-invest, DAOs, organizations, individuals, whatever, can easily set up a vault made up of smart contracts, but using a very easy, intuitive user interface and define certain parameters by which they want the vault to operate, which DeFi protocols, they, they get connectivity, they can define things if they want it to be open to outside investors or to be closed, they can define certain fees, management performance fees, they can define certain rule sets, etc. And they can deploy this vault to the blockchain in a couple of minutes. It's cheap, it costs less than a couple of hundred dollars. It's uh, very fast compared to traditional kind of equivalents. And it's, it's obviously very secure because a lot of it's enforced by, by the smart contracts. Once you've deployed, you have like a one-stop shop to manage all of your DeFi activity from that vault as a manager. You can manage things like reporting. You get your trade history very easily. You can manage things like a depositor, like inflows and outflows. You can manage your PNL in real time. You can get risk metrics and reporting metrics like in a real time basis. And so it basically, that might not seem like a big deal, but to... Uh, fund managers or asset managers or any kind of finance people. This is, is something that's quite hard to achieve in traditional finance at low cost and high speed. So this is uh, a huge advantage. The other type of uh, user we cater for is like investors or depositors or co co you know investors who want to invest together. And basically they can they have full transparency over all the products that we have on chain. They can browse like track record on chain. They can look for uh, proof of reputation, proof of performance, proof of, you know, anything, basically, they can, they can get in contact with managers, and they can choose to invest. And the upside for that is it's very, if you're a small to medium sized investor in, in Ethereum and DeFi gas costs are very high, so they get to bundle those transaction costs alongside others. And the other advantage is that they they don't i mean as you guys probably know defi is starting to become very complex and very hard to keep on top of and so unless you're doing it full time it's probably very difficult to stay on top of the best opportunities and it's uh, arguably better to to delegate that to someone who is doing it full time it is a full time job to try and keep up with this ecosystem especially right now and having the opportunity to to be able to with one button invest in the people that are doing it full time and have been doing it and have been posting returns consistently above the market is something that you know that is why I reached out to you. I think that's the most interesting thing to me is just that these people are, are writing their returns in stone. Everyone can see it. There is no question as to whether or not they actually did it. And you know, in traditional finance, it's like in order to get to these people that are posting these really good returns, you have to know somebody in order to even talk with them. 
And then once you get into the conversation with them, it's not like you can see their monthly returns for the last, you know, five years, like you could with, yeah. with enzyme, or I guess like four months because it's a, <laughs> that's the goal. But, you know, you spoke a little bit there about, about gas fees. And I wanted to ask you about whether or not the enzyme team is exploring uh, layer two scaling solutions and, and whether or not it's even applicable for you all. And if you are, wh what solutions are you optimistic for? Yeah, so we're definitely looking at layer two solutions. I think everyone is. We're, you know, in, in close contact with a lot of the teams doing cool stuff there. We're still a little bit on the fence in terms of going all in on any particular solution because we think it's just too early. But we're fascinated by some of the stuff happening. And we think probably shorter term, newer term, more likely thing would be to take some of the bigger and more liquid products onto layer two. So like the vault tokens themselves and then create liquidity mm. for them on uh, a layer two, but as a first step before thinking about moving an entire protocol into a layer two solution. Can you and you know, the, the reason for that, by the way, it, it's, you know, there, there has to be, we are an asset management protocol, so you have to have a wide range of assets to manage. So the idea of moving to something, some other kind of fully fleshed out solution before there are substantial assets there just doesn't seem very smart in our mind. That makes sense. And I definitely want to ask you about you know, as we move into the future, do you think that all assets will become digitized digitized over a long enough time horizon? Yeah, totally. I mean, that's why I got into, I mean, that was the assumption that I based five years ago when I got into this space. I was like, you know, everything is going to be digitized eventually or have a digital share class. And so based on that assumption, we can improve asset management or at least automate asset management in a way that I obviously personally believe is is better and more efficient for the smaller guy, but remains to be proven. I tend to agree with you, but I think that my reasoning is probably far less nuanced than yours because you've been thinking about it for so long and you know your background at Goldman Sachs and all these things. So why do you believe that assets will be will be digitized in the future? How do you justify that as a base assumption? Okay, yeah. So I mean, I guess I guess like why wouldn't they be like, it's so much more efficient. It's so much more transparent, you know, bookkeeping, reconciliation, settlement issues are the cause for really big errors, failures, points of failures in hedge funds and banks, you know, those kind of booking errors, et cetera, or lacks of transparency. Like if you look at like some of the big rogue traders that have, you know, been responsible for losing billions because they, they started betting too big. You know, one of the problems was that their risk managers and bosses didn't have the transparency to read through into that. The other reason is just a lack of efficiency, like, you know, traditional assets, like, you know, equities, they settle still T plus three or T plus two, depending on which country you're in. That's three days to settle an equity or to settle sometimes an FX transaction abroad. Like that is just not efficient. People need, you know, higher efficiencies. It's expensive. Again, you don't see where the fees go. You have no transparency. So, you know, basically there's, there isn't much downside and there isn't any downside I can think of. And all the upsides are higher efficiency, higher transparency, lower risk profile, lower risk of something going wrong, making people's lives easier. And so yeah, I guess the only downside is that like, you know, people make a living for being the intermediaries mm -hmm. that help settle trades. And so they're going to be out of business. That's one negative, I guess, for them. But uh, yeah, my, my assumption is just like, you know, every single sector in the world has been disrupted by finance in the last 50 years, except for finance. So why not finance? I love that. I, I agree with you. Can you briefly explain tokenomics to us and like 
how these different protocols, you know, enzymes specifically, how are you managing to extract as much value from your protocol as you're creating in the form of this token? And how do you make decisions to make sure that that stays? Yeah, so um, tokenomics is fascinating. Let's just focus on enzyme tokenomics for now because it's uh, easier. So I think tokenomics is fascinating because it allows you to benefit from network effects. And what do I mean by that? You can align different stakeholders in your ecosystem to, to perform in ways you want to perform if you design the right tokenomics. So what does that mean? So if you take the enzyme ecosystem as an example, we have three main stakeholders. We have the developers who contribute to the open source code and the maintenance, et cetera, and future development. We have uh, users who you can think of as like managers and investors into the vaults. And then we have the token holders. So there's three kind of uh, user group, stakeholder groups. Now, we want to create a mini economy for asset management with the MLN token, which powers Enzyme. So how do we do that? And how do we make our little mini economy work? in a way that's beneficial, mutually beneficial to everyone. So what we've designed is the MLN token is a utility token. So users who use the protocol pay for it. And ultimately that gets captured in melon tokens and then those melon tokens get burned. So they get removed from the supply. And this is really important because it ties into the second and third user group. Like when they're removed from the supply, as you know, like basic demand supply, less supply equals higher price or it, it, it results in a higher value most of the time. And so you're removing from them from the system. So you're basically making a direct link between usage on the network and the value of the MLN utility token. And that means that if you're a token holder, you're incentivized to help grow the users on the network because more users equals higher value for you. So essentially you can like, it's almost like employing an entire team of thousands of people to, to work for the protocol, you know, in terms of marketing, biz dev, et cetera, because they're incentivized to do so. Not that, not that they all do, obviously, but, it, you know, it, it, in a perfect world, they would. And, and then the third stakeholder group is the developers. And the developers are saying, thinking, hey, my code directly brings, you know, if, if my code base is good, if my application is good, I'm bringing more users to the network. And so again, the MLM token price goes up as a result and developers in the ecosystem earn an MLM token because there's a disinflationary system where we can mint certain number of tokens every year in order to pay contributors on the protocol level. And so the tokenomics design is designed such that all these three stakeholders are like perfectly working together in sync and aligned to make each other successful. Thank you for explaining that. So. If I understand correctly, and if I'm a believer in Enzyme, and I think it's going to be you know, the future of on-chain asset management, the best way for me to participate in the upside is to buy the token, obviously not financial advice, but is that how I would, as someone who believes in you and the, the protocol, participate in the potential upside? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if you, if you believe that the usage or the assets under management would increase on the Enzyme protocol, the best way to express that view would be to own MLN. I have a, a question about the tokenomics, would this lead to a potential like similar gas price scenario because it's tied to use on the network where like if it becomes too valuable or something that people like won't want to burn tokens? Is that like a possibility? 
That's a really good question. The way we had designed it originally, yes, because if you fix the price in MLN tokens and the price of MLN, you know, appreci appreciates versus other currencies, then yes, you would end up paying crazy amounts in fees. But we actually denominate the, the fees in, in a stable coin now that, you know, they're still sort of ultimately collected and converted into MLN. But in order to stabilize that effect, we, we actually charge them in, in a stable coin or we set them in a stable coin. Yeah, there's so many interesting rabbit holes we could go down with that. But to touch on what you were saying about the stakeholders of Enzyme and how you sort of have aligned these three different groups to work toward the, the betterment of this protocol. I wrote something the other day about like how DAOs and these decentralized protocols are like sort of solving the principal agent problem because there there is less agency in these protocols than there is in, in other sorts of governance and, and collections of, of people. Do you agree with that? That, that you know, over time, because you can align incentives in this way, the principal agent problem is reduced? Yeah, I do. I have to say, though, that I think one problem that is not aired enough in DeFi is that decentralization is obviously good for all the reasons we stated, but it does have trade-offs. So the more decentralized you become, by definition, the less efficient you become. So if you need, so let me give you an example. So the, 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 the far centralized end of the spectrum is the most efficient because one person needs to make a decision and then things can move forward. The medium kind of decentralization or the decentralization where you have, let's say, a committee of a board or a committee of 10, 11 people, which in my view is still very decentralized because it's very unlikely you would have 11 corrupt people on a, on a decentralized board like that. You, you, you still have the decentralization, but you still have some degree of efficiency. But imagine now you had a thousand people and you, in order to, you know, a thousand different people in a governance ecosystem and each person had one vote and you needed 50% quorum to pass a vote, you would need to wait for 500 votes to pass every time you needed to make a decision, which can become highly inefficient because mm -hmm. frankly, even if they're incentivized, like we've seen, we've learned, over the last few years that most voters are passive unless they're highly incentivized. So could you solve that by just like putting a time limit on on the vote and the, the total amount of votes? There's many yeah. different ways that people uh -huh. have experimented with. I mean, then you could say, but but if you don't, but then if you if, if the time limit is over and only 10% of people have voted, mm -hmm. which I've seen happen before, is that really decentralized then? Right. You know, because it could one holder, one token, like one token holder alone could own 10%, for example. So, you know, is, I guess, like, I guess depends if, if it was one vote per person, then that's fine. But if it's one vote for each token, that's kind of quite easily gameable because you get, you know, some of these large crypto funds can just buy up five, 10% in a second mm -hmm. with the amount of capital they have. Yeah, it's it's really interesting the the incentives here and how it'll play out in the future you know i think governance is as most people say just not solved yet and whoever can really do well with governance is setting up themselves to be written down in the history books because i think that it's a really important problem but switching gears here pretty harshly have you been in contact with us regulators about the enzyme protocol and like on chain on chain asset management and or does that even matter 
Yeah. Or does it even matter? I have not. I've been in touch with US lawyers and I've been in touch. Well, we were actually mentioned in the SEC mm -hmm. I saw that. report on DeFi. So they're clearly aware of us, I would imagine, and projects similar to ours. We're, you know, we have no US presence at the moment, like from a company perspective. And obviously we haven't been able to travel there for Mm -hmm. for a long time but but we follow like the you know we follow kind of the progress like you know there are some really big forward thinkers there from Hester you know like Hester Pierce etc and I think like from our perspective you know what we you know we we don't have to we don't what we sort of generally lobby for as much as possible as I said earlier it's I think it's way too early to know whether DeFi is a good thing or a bad thing I think one thing we know for sure is, or one thing I know for sure is it's, it would be highly stupid to put DeFi in the same bucket as TradFi in terms of a regulatory perspective or hold it to the same standards because it would instantaneously overnight hamper innovation and kill the entire industry. So the other thing is like, there are some, you know, there like I would say, almost all of the regulations which were designed with a different baseline set of assumptions for traditional finance, we assume that those rules were generally created to protect consumers and to protect the retail investors, et cetera. Many of those risks disappear with DeFi, provably. And it's true that you have a new set of risks that occur because of different and new assumptions, like you know the, the fact that the whole system is built on a blockchain, for example, but they, they they need to be, if ever, regulated, regulated with that new set of assumptions taken into consideration. So we're, of course, like, you know, we're very active, especially with the association that I'm a member of, uh, Multi-Chain Asset Managers Association. We're very active in terms of providing our feedback to consultations from different regulators and governments all over the world. But generally speaking, our position is don't regulate DeFi now just stay, stand back watch let it evolve let's figure out which components are good which components are bad with trackable data and then let's address those problems as and when we see fit because anything else would just kind of stunt everything right now i think definitely could you tell us a little bit more about mama and like what that organization exists to do yeah, MAMA was an organization I co-founded in 2017. It's a global association designed to represent the interests of decentralized finance products and projects in on-chain asset management. The idea is a lot of us are voluntary. We have over 60 members, a lot of the well-known names in the DeFi space, but also some traditional asset management players as well. And basically the idea there is that we, you know, we, we, when a regulator asks for an opinion on how should, you know, for example, let's keep it very general, DeFi be regulated, we don't want, you know, the JP Morgans of the world being the only ones to respond to that. We want to be able to, in a unified voice, represent DeFi and make sure that our interest is being represented on the table as well. And so that's basically the, that was the, the founding premise of MAMA. And, and that's what we, what we've always aimed to do. We also, you know, in line with that philosophy, we're also very focused on education, trying to educate regulators and governments, et cetera, on the benefits of decentralized finance and the differences between decentralized finance and TradFi. And uh, yeah, that's uh, kind of the, in a nutshell, basically. Sounds like a good voice for decentralized finance. I, I have a question for you. I think that I might be completely wrong, but I wanted to hear from you what you think about 
are there systemic risks in, in operability and composability of these protocols built on top of Ethereum? Meaning, like, if one domino fell with a smart contract and something like Maker, could that spread widely across? Could it could it um, spread widely across the decentralized finance ecosystem in sort of a, a domino effect way? It definitely could because we're at a stage where DeFi is highly composable, but it's also mitigated by the fact that we have insurance players like Unslashed and others working to ensure DeFi protocols and groups of in insurance protocols together to help protect against those kind of risks. So you're totally right. Of course, there's a systemic risk. It's a different kind of systemic risk. I would say it occurs because of two, two main things. One is poor financial design. So unfortunately, a lot of the protocols that are em emerging in DeFi are just poorly designed because they're built by people who don't maybe really understand finance, but do really understand tech, but don't really understand finance. And so, you know, in my last few years, I've seen some things which have horrified me in terms of design perspective and which I've thought to myself, wow, that almost shouldn't be allowed, you know? So that's one thing that can cause a systemic risk and the other, you know, kind of poor financial design and not thinking things through and people not fully understanding what they're getting into, getting into it, and then being a victim of that poor design. The other thing that I think is a systemic risk potentially is, is like unintended consequences, like so vulnerability in a code or an attack vector that wasn't actually intended or planned, but someone found a way around it. And we've seen that with a lot of the DeFi hacks last year. I don't think we've ever seen anything systemic yet, but I'm sure we will in the coming years. And so I, I don't necessarily, again, going back to the regulatory topic, I don't think that that means that DeFi has to be regulated, but it's just something to emphasize that anyone getting into the space should really do their homework. It's a world like we talked about at the beginning, these two alternative financial systems in the traditional finance system. It's almost like the regulator takes responsibility for your actions. <laughs> They try to protect you against what's not good for you. They try to prevent you from making risky investments. They, pr I, I personally am not a fan of that. I think everyone should have freedom of choice, etc. But that's the way it is in TradFi. In decentralized finance, it's the Wild West. It's the opposite, extreme opposite of that. Anyone can access anything. No one has to have any qualifications. That's all great. But it also means that you are responsible for your actions. There is no one to blame if it goes wrong. There's no one to protect you if it goes wrong, unless you were smart enough to buy insurance. And there's no one to like pay you back or, or make mm -hmm. you whole. So, you know, again, it like sings to these kind of two different systems. They both have their benefits. They both have their, you know, negative points and, and people have to decide what's best for them. And personally, I would think that a rational person would have some exposure to both financial systems and just allocate to those two different systems as he or she thinks is sensible for their own risk profile. So I have a career-based question. A lot of our listeners are young people, kind of early stages. They're in college, they're about to graduate, or they're still so early in their lives. You had traditional finance at the beginning of your career and have now transitioned in the past couple to DeFi. But for someone just starting out their career, what would you 
identify as some of the unique opportunities present within DeFi, someone interested in the space and excited to be a part of the Wild West should consider, whether that's being like a Solidity developer or joining a protocol in some other way, like what are some ways young people can join the space and make it like a legitimate contribution? Well, there's loads of jobs going right now, uh, especially for developers, but frankly, across the whole spectrum. I think Solidity developers, good Solidity developers are in high demand. So, you know, we're hiring in that space. Good developers in general, you know, good data scientists are in high demand. I think personally, if I was a student graduating now, I would be, and I was interested in this space, I would be immersing myself into all the, you know, kind of chat forums, et cetera, and learning and using protocols and trying to get familiar with them and, you know, inserting yourself into communities and figuring out what you like and what you don't like. But, you know, there's opportunities from biz dev, growth hacking, growth engineering, social media jobs, organizational posts, marketing. I think that, yeah, I mean, we're, we're obviously the, the industry, the sector is in a really good space right now. And if you are looking for a job, I would, I would encourage you to, to, to get your hands dirty, try different protocols ask questions, get to know the people in the chat, see which kind of communities you respect, you look up to, which ones you find less, you know, less interesting. And I probably would try to try to align yourself with people who have some form of track record. I mean, you can always go with like someone who's just like appeared out of nowhere and doesn't have a track record. And there might be more upside for you in that, but uh, it's also much more risky. And I think that important that I've learned in my career is I always feel like I want to be challenged and I always feel like I want to be learning. And so if you are in a, in a chat asking questions and you feel like you're not learning much from the answers, you know, I, I would push yourself to be challenged uh, because that's how you'll grow and that's how you'll make a great career for yourself. Thank you. Yeah, I like that answer. It's a lot of opportunity. I think we'll transition out to bonus round, which is just some faster questions, kind of all on the same topics, but not in any sequential order. So one thing I noticed when doing research for Enzyme and learning about you for this podcast is that Enzyme is rapidly approaching an AUM of your previous fund size. What does it feel like to potentially in the next couple soon, I'm not totally sure, don't want to put projections here, cross over Enzyme exceeding the previous fund you're managing in terms of assets under management? Yeah, pretty big, actually, like feels great. I mean, yeah, so so the, yeah, you're referring to before I even got into crypto, I ran a fund which was around 30 million at its peak. And we're about to cross that threshold, I think, any day now on Enzyme. And one thing that has struck me is in my, in my, the first time around in TradFi, I managed to raise the 30 million in, in like two or three months. With Enzyme, it's taken us five years as a team collectively to get there. So it's been a long journey till we, you know, till we got here. So I, it feels well-deserved, to be honest. Like it felt, it feels like good, you know, like in that feeling, like when you've, you've run a marathon and you feel like you deserve that pint of beer afterwards or whatever but I think that it's just the beginning you know the, the big vision is really I think you asked me at the beginning and I skipped through the question I forgot to answer it but what's the best you know best case scenario for enzyme five to ten years from now and for me it's really to be the infrastructure that underpins everything in decentralized asset management so that's you know a multi-trillion dollar opportunity I think it's huge I think it's not impossible we've been we're the only decentralized asset management pr protocol that has been around continuously and consistently with one unique, you know, kind of consistent vision for the last five years. I always like to joke in 2017, we had 15 competitors or so. Then it went down to like two in the bear market. 
or one even. And then like now we have 15 again in the bull market and kind of like the one constant has been us like throughout the whole process. So I feel like we stand a good chance of uh, surviving good and bad because we've, we've done it once before. Absolutely. And I, I kind of have a question along the same lines. I know you started, I guess, five years ago. So that was 2015, 2014. And I was having a conversation with somebody yesterday about how, you know, they're really into crypto and they're like, I felt stupid. Like everybody that, that knew anything looked at me like I was stupid five years ago. And so, you know, when you left your your job at Goldman Sachs and you're telling all these people what you were doing, I assume that you got some, you know, negative feedback. And to have the the total value locked in, in the area that you're looking at or that you're investing your time in go from, I assume, under $30 million to over $57 billion in the time that you've been involved in it. Do you feel extremely validated? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, I do actually. And I mean, I can't tell you the number of times investors told me over the last five years, you're too early, you're too early, this isn't going to happen. It's like at least a decade away, etc. So yeah, uh, the fact that it's happened, I mean, these conversations were less than two years ago, in many cases, the fact that it's happening now, yeah, I, 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 I basically just makes me want to <laughs> Call them, on, call them all back and say, I told you so, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> so yeah, totally. And, and for my old traditional finance colleagues, like I think, by the way, those doubters were also in crypto too. Like it wasn't just traditional finance, mm -hmm. but I think for the traditional finance people, you know, I think the truth is it's so intense when you work in traditional finance, like there's so much going on and it's such an intense you know, if you work on a trading floor or whatever, it's so intense. You 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 just don't have the band. I mean, band uh, DeFi is hard to understand. You know, you need time to invest. And by the time it gets to the weekend, those guys are all like beat if they even get a weekend. And they're like sort of, you know. So I I I I don't blame them because I think if I was still in traditional finance, I wouldn't have the bandwidth to to look into it. But I do, you know, I I do remember, you know, I think that. Generally speaking, a principle of investing, a principle in life is if everyone tells you not to do it and you're convinced that this is something you should do and you have like good evidence or a really strong view that is supported by various assumptions or, you know, whatever, then trust your gut feeling and go for it because often those are the best trades in life, the ones where they're sort of super anti-consensus and the ones where if you, you know if you're about to buy bitcoin at $62,000 and all your friends are telling you you should buy you should buy you should buy that's probably not the right time to buy you want to be buying when like everyone's telling you not to buy or to sell i love that it's very difficult to make those contrarian decisions and this seems like one that has been playing out pretty well so i have another question about how users are using enzyme from an investment perspective does any i was looking at the breakdown and again this is fascinating to me that it's also transparent and i can just go through and see exactly and anyone can how the 28 million dollars on enzyme like what that's uh, composed of does anything surprise you about how it's broken down so i looked out of the 28 million there's about 5 million in wrapped bitcoin 5 million in wrapped ethereum and then kind of a long tail of other popular projects is that like a distribution you kind of were expecting we're expecting a greater amount of speculative plays or because like, the way it's being used by active investors at all interesting or anything worth commenting on there. Sense. I think it makes sense. I mean, I would be surprised if it was all going into more speculative stuff because uh, that stuff is also less liquid. So if you're a good fund manager or, you know, vault manager, you want to make sure that you're able to 
provide liquidity, you're able to get in and out of positions easily if your market view changes and really only Bitcoin and ETH and some, you know, are, are the ways to do that. So, so you, you know, I think every portfolio obviously depends on your strategy, but most portfolios should, you know, to be prudent, have some allocation to Bitcoin and ETH. So yeah, that's, that's kind of my view on it. It hasn't really surprised me. I think what's been exciting really is having a lot of the new and recent integrations we've been doing with lending protocols like uh, Aave and the Compound. We have farming now possible where you can farm and claim rewards for, for lending. Or we have the ability to deposit into AMM pools and earn, you know, uh, rewards for that. And we're going to be integrating borrowing soon, things like curve pools. We have Alpha Homora. So you can see the whole, like, you know, the whole space kind of coming together in one place through from an enzyme vault quite quickly. And I think that that, will be interesting to observe in the next three to four months, like how manager activity changes when we have all those additional kind of integrations possible. I have another question. So I think that Enzyme is going to catch fire at some point in the same way that, you know, this DeFi pulse graph looks and it'll go from, you know, 30 million to a billion a lot faster than from zero to 30 million, like in total assets in these vaults. What do you think the opportunities are for, you know, a front running manager, a front running fund manager as a someone that's getting their returns written in stone? And do you think that it, it should be a concern where, you know, someone has been playing on Enzyme for, for years or a year, I guess, and they posted good returns consistently and now they've got this opportunity to raise capital at a like a, a non-linear pace do you think that that could potentially change incentives for these fund managers or, or change the way they act so you're kind of asking if winner take all effects could be too strong uh-huh right yeah i haven't really thought about that too much yeah it's possible i think we'll just have to wait and see how it plays out i think solving for a problem before we actually have it is probably Mm -hmm. not a good way to spend our time our philosophy generally speaking is let's worry you know we, we we try to build the infrastructure as best we can we try to foresee as many of these kind of well-known and well-documented problems we have learned from experience in traditional finance and also from DeFi mistakes we've seen other people make but other than that we're kind of in the in the camp of Let's not over-engineer solutions for things until they become a problem because they, you know, it comes at the expense of technical debt and, and time that could be spent on, you know, on, on more useful features, for example. Yeah, I really, I really respect that answer for sure. I have a train coming behind me, so I'm like, <laughs> I live very close to train tracks, so that was very loud for a moment. I think it's good, though. So a question I have, we've all said this a couple times on this podcast, is that keeping up with the space is a full-time mm -hmm. job. So yeah. who are some credible follows, credible thought leaders, credible publications that maybe send, you know, those reports that are actually worth reading to stay yeah. in the space or stay abreast uh, of the space? I, I love uh, reading Camilla Russo's Defiant podcast, Defiant newsletter. I love her podcast. I'm a big fan of Delphi Digital Research. I'm a big fan of Masari Research and Alerts, etc. I think those would be my, my favorites, to be honest. Amazing. Uh, a couple quick questions. How do you feel about the intersection of real estate and decentralized finance? And, and, you know, as you've said, you believe, and I believe that all assets will be digitized in the future. What can you put a timeline on, on real estate in your opinion? Yeah, real estate's already digitized in many places, actually, like there's Realty that are doing a great job. Mm -hmm. And I've heard of some other projects, I forget their names now, you know, the, the, 
the issue there is by nature those assets are not as liquid and so pricing them on chain you know is is still challenging i think realty have come up with some cool ways to approach that by creating liquidity pools on uniswap etc but it's going to happen it's just a matter of you know solving the kinks that exist today in terms of you know what's preventing it from taking off but i i kind of feel that it's a bit more challenging for securities in general and traditional finance backed assets because they're subject to a little bit more regulatory gray area uncertainty mm-hmm. at the moment. And I think once there's a bit of clarity on the reg side there, then they can probably accelerate much faster. If you Do you have any questions for, for Realty? Because I'm meeting with Remy today, actually. Oh, you are? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't spoken to them in a while. I, I Yeah, I'd love to know how they're tackling that liquidity issue and how they're going to scale. I think it's like an awesome, an awesome idea. And I'd love to bring real estate tokens into Enzyme in the future. That's the future I'm excited for. There you go. Facilitate the connection. A good place to to end. Maybe one last question. Well, if you had one piece of parting advice for somebody who's 21, just entering the workforce, graduating college, doesn't have to be about finance, doesn't have to be about decentralized finance, what would it be? I think I think my piece of advice would be go for if you want to be successful in your career go for a career that you can be passionate about go for a job that you can be passionate about because like don't fo- don't get fixated on where the money is or where what's hot but what what are you really passionate about what do you enjoy what can you get excited about because I feel like if you know if work is fun for you if work is like enjoyable for you you'll excel at whatever you do even even if you don't it's not immediately obvious how well that's awesome where should people go to learn more about enzyme and or keep up with you uh so yeah so enzyme you can just go to our website enzyme.finance and you can you know access all of our social media links from there keep in touch with our news and for me you can you can probably best places to follow me on twitter i'm at mona underscore l e l underscore ISA. And yeah, I'd love to hear from you guys and, and stay in touch. And and yeah, if, if for, for anyone who is like pursuing a career in this space, like wishing, yeah, kind of wish you guys all the best of luck. Well, thank you Fantastic. so much. Thank you. And that wraps up our conversation with Mona L. Issa. I thought it was really, really cool. Three of my takeaways quickly are the first of which is work on what matters. You know, I asked her like right before we started the call, about the Coinbase IPO and, and what that meant. And then I asked her really late in the in the podcast about a, a sort of winner-take-all question. And she's like, you know, I mean, we don't really think about that. Like, we're, we're heads down, we're building. And I just think that that's really cool that she's not, she's able to focus on what actually matters and that's what she's actively doing. The second is, it was really cool to see her light up when I asked her about the validation that she feels having worked in DeFi for, I guess, five years now and how you know the space went from a, a 20 million dollar tiny industry to now the talk of the town it's, it's got 55 billion dollars wrapped up in it and for her to have been there from the beginning i think it's got to be extremely validating and, and it obviously is by the way that she smiled when when we asked her that question and then the last one is just her ability to be transparent you know she's building enzyme and one of the built the 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 big benefits of Enzyme is the transparency that it provides for both investors and these fund managers. And, you know, it's obvious that she cares about that because she even is being transparent about the realities of decentralized finance and traditional finance. She's like, you know, I don't, it's not obvious yet whether or not decentralized finance is a good thing. And for her to be able to say that after going through this gigantic growth, 
is, is super telling of, of how well she or how good she is at critical thinking and how she's willing to to evaluate the facts instead of being you know just riding the hype but those are my takeaways what do you think lewis yeah three different ones which is good we uh, do a lot of repeating each other here so it's good to not do that first takeaway is joining communities as a way to get involved most people this is something we said a lot earlier in the podcast not this episode but like earlier episodes is you just don't realize how accessible most people are there's for almost every one of these decentralized finance projects, there's a telegram group, there's a signal group, there's a discord, there's a slack that you can just like join. You don't even have to like buy any of the, the tokens of that protocol. You can just like press join. They make you like fill out like one document, not even document, just like I accept the rules. I'm not going to harass anyone. And you can literally chat with the people building any of these products and ask them questions. And that's a fantastic way to get involved, meet other people and learn in like a fundamental level and get like a gut check as like if the humans building this are good people or not. So that's a super awesome way to get involved in the industry. Second takeaway is to not discard everything from the old world. I think Mona has a huge advantage uh, in this space because of her years at Goldman Sachs and she's seen similar problems before. Just because decentralized finance changes a lot of aspects of finance, that doesn't mean that like certain repeatable patterns and certain incentive schemes won't rise up. And having actually thought about these things and actually seen how things used to be, she has a greater respect for how to design them more intelligently than someone who's coming in this with no traditional finance background. So it's kind of like, don't discard everything about the old world that may or may not be useful. And that's actually potentially an advantage. Third thing is, it's just massive opportunities. I was like, what are some opportunities? She's like, well, there's jobs in blah, 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 blah. Like every aspect. She's like, if you want to do social media, there's social media. If you want to do dev, there is a ton of dev. If you need to, like, it's just a, a growing industry that needs people to help it grow. So if you're interested in this universe, consider it. That's all I have to say about this episode. I agree, Kyle. She was awesome. This was awesome. I hope you all agree with us that it was awesome. I appreciate you being here listening to the podcast this far if you want to support us the best way for you to do that is to give us a rating or review on apple itunes if you want to have a conversation with us we're pretty active on twitter you can jump in there ask us questions keep the conversation going about topics from this or any other episode we have a couple great recent episodes we published in the past few weeks about similar topics creating confidence with heather monahan a very different perspective on the cryptocurrency DeFi universe with andy from DeFi slate uh, a much more young unreserved perspective but still very fun and exciting from the perspective of a 21-year-old in the space. And before that, learning about productivity and existentialism with Kay He. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to know when we release new episodes, which will be in a week on Tuesday. See you there. Thanks for listening. Have a good one.